Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Chris Leonard, and he'll be answering your questions on Mammoth Lakes fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of our website. Just sign up and fill in your name and email address, and uh, we'll let you know when the next live show will be. The broadcast is being recorded, and it will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, etc. So, uh, and any, any of the other uh, platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website uh, or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do so, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also include fly fishing. That would be great. If you have a moment, do it right now. We've got some links on the homepage there that allow you to, to share the knowledge. And the broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Chris Leonard about Mammoth Lakes fly fishing. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Chris, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight for our drawing tonight. We'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Chris's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We will also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be something that Chris and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage, and uh, you may win one of these books. I've got a list of Stackpole Books that I'll send out to the winner, and they'll get to choose which one they want. Uh, sent to them. So take good notes and type fast when the time comes, and hopefully you'll win a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Chris Leonard. Chris is a teacher at Mammoth High School. His greatest passions are education and fly fishing, making him a choice fly fishing instructor uh, and on-water guide. He guides through Kittredge Sports during the summer, also weekends and holidays during the school year. Rivers and lakes and Tenkara and Western Rods are all within his reach. He began fly fishing when he moved to Mammoth Lakes, California, 
And his favorite waters to fish there and guide on include the Owens River, Hot Creek, Rush Creek, Rock Creek, San Joaquin River, and Crowley Lake. A seasoned traveler, he has chased trout as close as the, the western U.S., as far away as the Middle East, eastern U.S., and the, as well as Central America and South America. He has hooked chrome in the Pacific Northwest, redfish in New Orleans, and bonefish, permit, tarpon, and Belize. He takes local mammoth kids out on the water and teaches them how to fish. Hey, Chris, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here this evening. Well, good, good. I know it's a school night, isn't it? <laughs> ah, what school mean these days, right? So I just ah. with my neighbors next door about the Zoom world. So, yeah, technically it's a school night, but this is a different set of circumstances with 2020. So I'm used yeah. to doing things uh, not sight um, seen. So this, this will work just fine for us communicating this evening. Okay, good, good. Uh, so we're going to talk about a bunch of the fisheries in the Mammoth Lakes area, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, Phil McCartney in Kentucky, at, who's also an educator, uh, I believe at the university level, but um, in math, I think. Uh, but Phil, if I remember right, he can correct me. <laughs> but he says he wants to know about your, your fly fishing club. He says, please tell us about the fly fishing club at the high school where you teach. I believe that more students should have the opportunity to learn about fly fishing. What a wonderful way to motivate a lifetime of interest in both science and art. Schools are generally short on funding. Has your club gotten help from local IFF clubs? So um, thanks for the question, Phil. Yeah, I, I, just, I read your question also looking at this. And um, it's one of my favorite questions to answer, as a matter of fact, because that's where my journey with fly fishing began. So, yeah, there is uh, financial support and donations of, of used equipment that's um, come in over the years. So the Fly Fishing Club basically is I moved to Mammoth in 2004. For those of you guys that are curious about where Mammoth Lakes is, I'm in the eastern Sierra Mountain Range, kind of the middle of nowhere, the island of the skies we like to refer it to. It's a, it's a world-class ski area, and I came here in 2004, got hired to teach at the high school, and I came here a skier, you know, grew up uh, bait fishing a little bit in San uh, Bernardino Mountains in Southern California as a child. And I didn't know anything about what to do here, spring, summer activities, once the snow melted. And I asked my principal, who hired me at the time, Mike DeRisi, for a fishing club. I was thinking bait fishing that first, um, I guess it would be April 2005 then. And he said no, money finance, shut it down. Uh, long story short, started duck hunting the next uh, season, got drugged by that. So an actual transition from bait fishing that I loved. I was doing a lot of bait fishing my first April, May, and Mammoth. The duck hunting was to start a fly fishing journey. So I approached my principal at the time again, and I said, Mike, I'd like a fly fishing club. You know, I did my background research. You know, I threw out words that I didn't know the meaning of at the time, like entomology and ichthyology and hydraulics and all this. And he said, sure, you can go ahead and do it. You know, I was offering a free science classroom after school, basically. I teach the social sciences myself. You know, then I was teaching English a second language, so that was a fun break, um, you know, to, to work with kids in a different manner. The problem was I had 10 kids sign up, and I knew absolutely nothing about fly fishing. So um, true story. So, you know, at that point in the community, I was well-established. I was friends with a lot of guides, you know, the outfitters in town. So I just got on the phone and called everyone up for help, and you'd be surprised when you say, you know, kids are involved. Like 99% of the people want to step forward and help. And so I had friends, guides come out and, and work pro bono with me and the kids, and, uh, you know, local outfitters, Rick Sporting Goods, I think, gave me five Reddington rods and reels back at the time. Everyone was so ecstatic about the idea of a local fly fishing club for Mammoth High School where fly fishing is so great that everyone jumped on board. And so, you know, I, that's where I, my journey began. I mean, I was going out after school with, with the kids, you know, a pro bono guide for three hours, two, three days a week, and then practicing what I was doing afterwards. So 
That was a long time ago. That was 2005, 2006. So you guys can do the math about 15 years ago. And since then, I've taught, oh, man, I couldn't tell you. I average about maybe 10 to 15 kids a season times, what, 15 years. So I've had a, a lot of students come through the program. Some of them are all grown up now, like, you know, Garrett Warmhout went through the program. He's a manager at, down at Trout Fitter in town. And Chad Caston went through the program, and he's a, a sidekick of his at Trout Fitter. And Reed Lindestreeth went through the program, and he's a local guide, full-time employed at the geothermal plant. Um, the kids that haven't been fly fishers have gone out and done great things. Sergio working up in the mountain as a middle manager. It's um, It's been pretty cool. So there's a couple other kids. Bo Tyndall went into science. Um, it's It's been a really cool thing to watch. And in regards to asking about kind of, a, uh, you know, your take on how to get this started, I mean, you know, you want to learn to swim, you jump in the pool. And so I'd say the same thing with starting a fly fishing club. I mean, in order for things like this to get started, it takes an individual someone who's got curiosity and a little motivation. And that was me back in 2005. So it just, you know, get on the horn, man. You know, call the, call the outfitters, call the, the reps. You'd be surprised at how much positive um, feedback you get from people. And, and people love the idea. And so because kids are the future of the generation and, and, you know, they're sponges that we can mold and shape to, you know, to kind of take over from us older dudes, you know, and be the next – the next people we hand the rod to in the sport. So um, I've had support from Southwest Council. I've had support from so many people I can't even name it, to be honest. It's, uh, you know, and we're not talking huge monetary donations, but, you know, I, I see some money rolling every now and then or just something like you get your name out there is how it works, you know. And I've gotten, you know, like from retired folk out in, in New York that send me old rods that say, you know, I haven't used this in 10 years. Here, use it for the kids. So it's really, I would use publicity as your um, as your number one kind of, uh, source of, of getting off the ground when you do something like this. If you want to start up a club, and this goes for any of you guys listening anywhere in the country, be loud. Talk about it and be vocal. And, and people will come out and help. And it's it's been such a fun journey. And I've had it informal. You know, I mean, some kids have come, you know, it's usually run in spring during the start of the traditional season. And some kids come out, you know, two days a week. And other kids might come once if they don't want to do it. Some kids will come every day. You know, I mean, I, I, it's been really awesome. It's been it's been a really, really rewarding experience for me. It's one of those things where you get more than you give. And um, yeah, it, that's uh, just been the like truth. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, hey, thanks so much for doing that for those kids. Uh, and we know, like you say, it, this is the future. You know, if we don't start with them, they're, you know, fly fishing will peter out. You know, we, we need the young people involved. So, uh, uh, so kudos to you, uh, Chris, for, for doing that. Um, and uh, I hope that uh, Phil maybe will get something going uh, at his university even, because I know what, uh, gosh, um, now the name slipped me, but, um, you know, out in Pennsylvania uh, at the university level, there were fly fishing courses out there that are being that taught. That needs to come up a so, few times, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, anyway, well, let's, uh, let's dig into the fly fishing in your area. First of all, orient us to Mammoth Lakes area. I've only been there once when I was in college in Santa Barbara. We got up at 3 in the morning and drove up there to go skiing. <laughs> and, and that was the once and only time that I've been to Mammoth Lakes. So, uh, so orient us um, and maybe kind of give us a visual map of the fisheries we'll be talking about, the Owens River, San Joaquin, Hawk Creek, Rock Creek, Rush Creek, and Crowley Lake, and, and how they are around the, you know, oriented around the Mammoth Lakes area. Gladly, Roger. So, I mean, you know, first of all, just to let you guys know, the skier in me says, you know, there's two types of skiers in this world. There's there's Mammoth Mountain and there's everywhere else. 
And there's a lot of truth to that. It's, it is an epic ski area. I went to Taos for the first time last winter. I absolutely loved it. You know, there's a huge crossover between the ski world and the fly fishing world. I mean, that's just a given. When you travel through most alpine ski resort areas in North America, there's usually some trout creeks and some uh, and some fly shops in town. So in regards to the one where I live, I'm going to be blunt, Roger. When you use the words rivers, and we call them rivers, you know, the San Joaquin River, the Owens River, it really, I mean, I was fishing a river last week. I was up on the Grand Ronde. Uh, stinging um, steelhead with my buddy Rick Matney, um, who guides out of Bozeman, Montana, in Wrangell, Alaska. He organized the guide retreat, you know, the friends retreat. And we were on the Snake River, you know, he hunting surgeon for a day. And those are real rivers. And so in the <laughs> eastern Sierra, well, I'm, you know, I'm being blunt. Right? We have what are, called, what are yeah. the creeks that are called rivers. And so the upper Owens and the lower Owens are both flowing at about 100 cubic feet per second right now. We call that a river, right? There are creeks that flow way more than that. So the beauty of that is, it's, you know, it's a lot of wade trips, walking wade trips throughout the area. There really is, in my opinion, is there driftable water here at the Sierra Drifters, a guide service, and some others drift the lower Owens down in the valley in Bishop. It's only 45 minutes from me during the winter months. Uh, but that's more of an access point to get from point A to point B and not have to deal with the willows. But most of the, the moving water fishing up here is wading. And so very, very little of it is driftable. And the scenery is unbelievably breathtaking. The thing about the eastern Sierra is you're, you're right up against these, these magnificent, unbelievable mountains. And I've been all over the world. I've been to Kashmir. I've been to, lived in Switzerland. I lived in Italy. I lived in Romania. I've been to a lot of places. I've been to the Andes. And the eastern Sierras winds hands down for just sheer beauty. And to give you an idea of the geography of the area, so Mammoth Lakes, the town, the community, is about 7,500-foot elevation. We joke that, uh, what are they called, the Bronco Stadium, Mile High Stadium. Our football stadium is Mile and a Half High Stadium. So it's, it's fun watching kids from SoCal come up and, you know, kick off, kick the ball, and then trying to find them, you know, looking for oxygen only 30 yards down the field. But in any event, I'm at 7,500 feet, and the mountains surrounding me are anywhere from 11 to 14. And um, that's Mammoth, and we have, like, our own little microclimate here in Mammoth. We're actually looking at probably getting snow this Sunday. And the beautiful thing about Mammoth that is so unique to the part of where I live is this is California. So if I don't like winter, I get in my truck and I drive south 40 minutes uh, 40 miles to Bishop, which is at 4,000 feet in the Owens Valley. And there it's only 4,000 feet elevation, and I can fish the lower Owens in the wintertime, a variety of other small creeks in the summertime, and I'm surrounded by these unbelievably beautiful mountains. So um, where am I? It's really kind of, you know, Nevada's my closest neighbor. It's uh, I'm three hours south of Reno. I'm about four and a half to five hours above Los Angeles. Um, there's not much out here. It's, uh, you know, it's Department of Water and Power, is really they're they're the major reason why we exist. Mulholland, Willem Mulholland, 100 years ago bought up this land and rerouted the water down to Los Angeles. And I live from one of the three major sources of water from LA, which is the Owens River. That's a, a major water source uh, for Los Angeles. They also get it from the Sac Delta and from uh, Colorado River. But that said, it's not developed because it will never be developed because Los Angeles is not going to compromise its water for uh, the development of the Owens Valley. So what really makes Mammoth unique is that it's this breathtakingly magnificent land. It's the sheer beauty is unmatched, in my opinion, and um, it's all public access. So I think something like Mono County, where I live, is like 98% public land. It's it basically, you know, the big players are Bureau of Land Management, LA Department of Water and Power, and U.S. Forest Service. And what makes Mammoth Lakes and the Eastern Sierra so unique is that there's so few no trespassing signs around. And when I travel to other parts of the country, it gives me a real feel for how blessed I am to have so much public land available to me. So, um, 
you know, this, the creeks here, Hot Creek, Owens, San Joaquin, and we'll go into detail about those. I saw a lot of you guys have questions. Crowley Lake is uh, is kind of, as Ernie Goley, a local guide, says, is what does he call it, the, the queen jewel of the eastern Sierra. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful blue ribbon trout fishery. So a lot of, you know, Roger, just answer the question the simple way, a lot of weightable creeks, uh, you know, freestone. Uh, a couple tailwaters and and a few really beautiful lakes and some high country now, are these, with all sorts. Are all these fisheries within uh, an hour uh, if you're staying in Mammoth Lakes? Yeah, so much closer. Did so Hot say? Creek is only okay. about a 10 to 15 minute drive from my house. I mean, I fish Hot Creek. Okay. I average about 70 to 90 days a year there. And, you know, that would mean maybe only two hours after school. But, uh, you know, and I street shoes. You don't wait it. You know, you're talking about a technical fishery with healthy fish in it. You're wearing street shoes. You're not waiting it. So Hot Creek's 10, 15 minutes from my house. You know, the Owens is, is maybe 20. You know, the lower Owens is 40. East Walker is just under an hour. Crowley Lake is 15 minutes. San Joaquin is 30 minutes. Most stuff is within an hour. So really, really okay. close. Okay, great, great, great. So you come to the area, you've got lots of places to fish, it sounds like. Um, Bill in uh, in Oregon asked, uh, what's the best time of year to fish and vacation in that area? Is Are there plentiful lodging and restaurants? My response always, Bill, is, is there a season, right? So, I mean, people ask, and they post on Facebook, if you guys want some info, Eastern Sierra Fishing and Eastern Sierra Fly Fishing are two really good Facebook pages uh, to, to follow this area. And it, the question comes up once every two weeks, what's the best season to fish in Mammoth? And my answer is always, is there a season? So. You know, there is year-round fishing opportunity here, and every single season is unique. That said, if I could pick probably one month of the year that would be my favorite, I'd maybe go with May, or I'd probably go with uh, July, all right? So um, wintertime could be super fun, too, though. You know, something that's really unique is that I, I've had several days in my life for you skiers out there where I've gone and, and skied knee-deep powder off the back of Mammoth Mountain until 10.30 when the crowd show up, come home, grab the dogs, run down to Bishop, and I'm wearing like a, a light sweatshirt and, and sticking trout on mayflies at one in the afternoon. So <laughs> this time of year, nice. you know, there's, yeah. there, it's great. You know, there's fall colors. But to answer, if I had to choose one month of the year, I'd probably go with May. The reason for that is is because May is a good bet coming out of any winter because a lot of our fisheries are, are snow-fed. So if we have a major winter, you're looking at usually June, the rivers can be blown out. You know, the lakes will fish well, but you're going to lose the rivers if you don't have a great river, there's still high water content in May. You're going to get some snow runoff. So in and, and May, the fish always are kind of like, you know, start of the season, curious, usually a, a more user-friendly fish you're fishing for. I love July. I love the long days. I think July, the, you know, the dry action is incredible, off the hook good. It's, uh, but there is no bad month to be here. If you're a skier, come out in February and do what I do and ski a half day and fish a half day. You know, if you don't like the tourism, come in October, November when crowds are lighter. You know, it's just there's always an opportunity to fish here, and that's okay. kind of the beauty of it. Cool, cool. Um, there were two questions. I'm going to kind of merge them together. Uh, Peter Rogers in Sonoma, California, and Greg Stumpf in uh, Powell Butte, Oregon. Uh, both are asking, you know, what's your favorite uh, – which of these is your favorite place to fish? And uh, is there a place that you would guide rather than fish yourself? I mean, is there a preferred guide river or creek, let's call them, uh, as yeah, opposed to absolutely. your favorite place? Yeah. Well, I, there is a mesh there, to be honest, Roger. And those are great questions, so thanks for reaching out. I do know Greg, actually, personally, a good friend of mine. Thanks for asking, Greg. 
And, uh, you know, Lefty Cray said if he had one day left on this planet to live, he would, he'd spend it chasing bones on the flats. And, and that's a high second for me. It's, you know, that's a really fun time. I've been to Belize a handful of times. I love the, the saltwater flats fishing. But for me, if I had one day left on this planet, it'd be at Hot Creek. So, you know, I mentioned Hot Creek earlier. And Hot Creek, guys, is a unique place. It's, uh, it's spring-fed. It's also, it is as well, uh, you know, it, it's manipulated by snowmelt, affected by snowmelt. But it's generally spring-fed. And it's got all the right circumstances for trout habitat. It's, you know, the, the vegetation, um, basically the structure of it. It's, it's a small creek. It's, you know, you don't weight it. You wear your tennis shoes. And it's got some really healthy fish that are in it. And it's very technical. And uh, it's just super fun. It's divided by three parts. You know, the interpretive site is the first section that you fish right below the uh, hatchery there. There's a hatchery, which gives you guys an idea of how good it is for, for life sustaining. Then the, the ranch, Hot Creek Ranch, is the private section. It's dry fly only. It's traditional. I actually guided a couple clients there. The summer is a great time. And then you get the canyon, which is the public access section. And so you get a variety of dry fly and, and wet fly action there. And it's just it's just a super pretty place. It's um, I've seen a lot of pretty trout fisheries in the world. And, and Hot Creek is just my favorite. It's it's I love it to fish. Um, guiding, I think, you know, when's river, wind's hand down. So it's... Um, I had so many fun days on the Owens this summer with clients and last summer because you get some of the most explosive grasshopper action you're going to find probably in the American West on the Owens River. It's this grass line, the upper Owens, and the hopper action, I mean, like biblical lotus is what you're looking at. I mean, in June, July, thousands and millions of hoppers everywhere. And, and I'd take clients out. They get 99 opportunities to set the hook with the hopper. You know, they they set it five times because those trout spit so lightning fast. But it's so fun to watch. You know, flipping 12, 14 size grasshoppers on the water and watch the the fish come out and attack them. So that's my favorite for guiding, and my favorite to fish would be Hot Creek. Okay, okay, good. We're going to dive into both of those in more detail um, in just a few minutes. Before we do that. Is there, do you have a particular rod weight and length that you like to use uh, in all these areas? I mean, if I'm coming out there, what should I bring is what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's a tough question to ask, answer, Roger, because I kind of mix it up myself. I don't subscribe to any one form of, of fishing. I mean, I thought Tenkara fishing was super stupid until I tried it for the first time in Costa Rica back in 2016. I'd say a lot of our creeks are very conducive for Tenkara fishing. I think... Um, if I had one weight alone for the Eastern Sierra, I'd probably, you know, the standard rod is a 9-foot 5 weight, and that's probably what I would, I like the 8-6, 5 weight, little shorter stick, can handle a big fish. Uh, you know, 4 weight's fun to fish, I mean, a 2 weight, it's, you know, it's, it's those are basically your size range for what you're fishing out here, so, but that's a personal preference, and I'm not going to impose my belief system on anyone else. Sure, sure. Okay, good. Let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll start digging digging into each of these fisheries and learn more about them there. So, hang tight with me, Chris, and I'll be right back. Thank you. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake. They derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. 
A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongos, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack crevel, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Chris Leonard about Mammoth Lakes Fly Fishing. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our home page at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your questions. Try to answer them as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, Chris, I was asked my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world. We, we know about the, the fly fishing club. What else are you up to out there in California? As far as fly fishing? Yeah. Um, I know well, you're guiding. You want to tell us about your guiding? and? Uh, yeah, gladly. Thank you. So, so it's, uh, you know, it's, um, I mean, this is kind of the quiet period right now. So but my entire life has been consumed the last 10 days by taking home. He's now a 12-week-old lab. So, um, you know, it's. It's uh, my fly fishing has been temporarily sidelined for uh, completely obvious reasons. So I have three dogs at this point. But um, as far as what I do under normal circumstances for fly fishing, um, you know, it's just I mean I'm I'm out on the water basically every day for summertime. Uh, whether I'm fishing myself, whether I'm guiding, do I like guiding or fly fishing more one or the other? I don't know if I can answer that question. So I probably at the end of the day would rather fly fish than guide. But I really enjoy sharing. You know, my knowledge and experience uh, with others with the sport. There's a little guy yapping right now. I'm moving under the room so you guys don't have to hear a 12-week-old lab barking. But, um, you know, I'm just it's, it's my drug of choice. I mean, that's really what it boils down to is what fly fishing is for me. And so uh, right now, kind of, uh, we're through the transition period. It's November, so the traditional season is going to close the 15th. And temperatures are really kind of plummeting to begin with right now, so it's, it's a slower season, so to speak. So I did guide Sunday on the Upper Owens. I had I had three plus one. Uh, Mike hired me to to fish his his wife and his his two friends, and I'm guiding um, my good friends David and Renee down on the Owens uh, this Sunday. And then I have two others the Sunday after on the Lower Owens. So this is kind of for me my transition period of of moving from as I talked earlier from the Mammoth Lakes region down to Bishop, which is about 40 minutes basically down the road because it's just um, kind of the flipping of seasons is what it is. Bishop has really heavy water flows and unbearable air temperatures during summer, so I do not fish that part of the of the eastern Sierra during the summer months. And then I kind of flip and rotate. And then during this time of year, while there are uh, anglers and guides who fish the upper Owens for the quote-unquote snowbows, the big migrating spawning rainbows that go up there, I personally – don't enjoy fishing spawning fish, so I leave them alone and let them do their thing, and I go down and, and fish the fish down in the Owens below that had a rest. So where I'm at right now is kind of that transition period. So I coming off of what was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, an unbelievably busy summer. The guiding was just off the charts busy. Predictably enough, you know, we are Southern California's closest uh, world-class mountain experience. So after the whole quarantine fiasco of, you know, March, April, uh, May, people getting cabin fever, they all raced up here. And, and guides had to clone themselves two, three times in order to, to accommodate client requests. It was it was so busy. But, I, you know, it was great. It was good to 
to give people a sense of time on the water and normalcy and and obviously recreating in a safe environment outdoors. And it was a super fun, really productive summer. Um, I haven't had a summer in my life um, in Mammoth more than this last summer staying here. I like to travel myself a lot. I'm a big live music fan. I chase bands like, you know, Dead and Company and Fish and Jam Band Scene. And I fish where I go. So for me, it was unique to actually be locked up and hold here in Mammoth the entire summer, accommodating uh, basically Everybody else. Over for, for others. <laughs> it was a good time, Roger. It was a really yeah. good time. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, man. It's just, you know, I live in a, in a special place, and I, I can't take that for granted. And, you know, it's, when I think about it, I mean, I'm answering more from the summer aspect here, but, you know, I have a boat on Crowley Lake, a little 16-foot bass tracker, and I have an extra neighbor who's got as bad of a, a fishing problem as I do. So, you know, I mean, my neighbor Hodges and I, we, you know, we fish Crowley probably 30 days a summer when I'm not guiding. And it was challenging the start of summer. The fish were at 30 feet deep, and that's hard to fish for fly fishing. And while other guides were were brave enough to take clients after fishing 30 feet of depth, I was kind of shying away from trips. I was just having so much fun fishing it myself, to be honest. And uh, yeah, so, you yeah. know, my neighbor and I were on it or other friends and, you know, just go out and get sunburn on the lake, come back, take a nap, wake up, you know, get the evening hat so, at Hawk Creek. It's not a bad life. Yeah. So tell us about you fish out of a shop. So let's name drop your shop and their, their website address so that people can know where to connect with you there. Thank you. That would be appropriate. Yeah, so I guide for Kittredge Sports. Kittredge Sports in Mammoth Lakes, uh, 7 uh, or com. We are primarily a ski outfitter. Uh, this, Doug Kittredge started in 1963 as a, a bow hunting outfitter, actually. And so, um, and it morphed over the years when Dave McCoy started the mountain. You know, they went to skis and ski rentals and all that. And then um, we're one of the smaller players in town. We got a smaller guide outfit number, about six. Half, about half a dozen fly guides working for the shop. Got a trolling guide, bait guide, too. We don't get a lot of requests for those, but they come up. But compared to, you know, there's some other town, Trout Fitter's the big player in town. And I'm friends with all sorts of guys that guide through the other shops. You know, it's, there's enough politics in the world already to, to not get along with the vast majority of other guides. But So I work for them. I guide exclusively for them. So, um, sure, Roger. Thanks for asking it. You know, my objective isn't to sell a trip on this interview, but if anyone wants to hire me, I can be sure. contacted to Kittredge Sports. So Good. Okay, good. Let's jump into some of these fisheries. Um, let's start out with the Owens River. Uh, you mentioned upper and lower. Sounds like you are fishing more the upper most of the time. Or de Describe what makes upper and lower and what are the differences. Yeah, I will gladly. So the, the Owens River, is a, it starts at Big Springs. And that's up above me uh, on the 395, Highway 395, about five, six miles. And it's, it's where basically the springs open up, and then it flows into the Owens River. Now, the Owens River then uh, picks up some water from Grant Lake and Rush Creek, and DWP has done a good job of being able to reroute water through various channels and tubes and such over the years in order to get it into the California aqueduct that flows down to Los Angeles. So the upper Owens River, which is below me in Mammoth, uh, short drive, you know, 15, 20 minutes, uh, flows for about, oh, I'd tell you, maybe four miles the way the, the crow flies until it enters, maybe more than that, no, more than that, probably six miles, seven miles the way the crow flies until it enters uh, Crowley Lake. And then at Crowley Lake uh, is a big, it's actually misnamed, it should be called Crowley Reservoir, it's a man-made reservoir, but that's a semantic discussion. And then from there, it, it flows through what some people call the, the gorge or the middle Owens. And so uh, that's the part that, um, you know, the first part of the gorge is not really fishable. There's some spots. There's part of the gorge down by Bishop that people do get into. It's it's treacherous area. It's, you know, the rattlesnakes. I don't spend a lot of time there. I fish more with the lower Owens is. 
is where it flows out of Pleasant Valley Reservoir. So the, the middle part of the Owens flows into Pleasant Valley Reservoir, which is a reservoir just above Bishop, and then it flows into the lower Owens and all throughout the Owens Valley. And then you get into also things like warm water species like carp and mm -hmm. some bluegill, uh, some bass and catfish. So it's um, that's the Owens. It, it okay. really is kind of the backbone of the area, I would say. So the upper the upper Owens area that uh, is closer to you and you fish, um, what does that water look like there? Is it is it uh, I mean is it a, is it a spring creeky kind of uh, fishery? Is it more? Yes, it has a spring creek feel. So while I said there is some water manipulation from DWP, it is a spring creek really by definition. So kind of okay. mostly sandy bottom. So you know some some uh, grass in there also, not really rock bottom. Um, it's surrounded by a lot of cow pasture, you know, green grass, cow pasture. It sits in the valley. It sits in the Long Valley Caldera. And the Long Valley Caldera is actually the, the largest known volcanic eruption in the history of North America. It exploded three-quarter million years ago, and it's a giant caldera. It's a very pretty place. And so you're surrounded by, to the west of you, the eastern Sierras, and to the east of you are the Glass Mountains and the White Mountains. And it's just a very pretty um, caldera setting with this... Uh, river we call it a river but you know i prefer to call it a creek because it's about you know most of it is about no more than two rod lengths across so it's not major water i mean i thought i knew how to how to cast a fly rod until i went to belize in 2015 for the first time <laughs> and i realized i didn't know how to cast and that's because i learned how to fly fish in the eastern sierra where casting is not really important i mean it is but it is yeah. sure you have to put the fly in the hole but the hole is only going to be 30 feet from you so it's not like, you know, tossing, a, you know, something in a moving bonefish. It's very different. So right. that said, the Owens River is really a very user-friendly place to learn to fly fish. There's not much as far as its structure behind you. What I mean by that is there's really no trees. There's, there's nothing behind you. So it's a super user-friendly place for beginners because the only thing you're going to snag on your back cast is, is you're flying the grass from opening up your wrist and dropping your rod behind you. Okay. And what, what, what species are you targeting there? They have three, basically browns, bows, and cutthroats. So uh, occasionally you might get a sucker accidentally, you know, a chewy chub that comes up in there. But And there are different strains of the rainbows and the cuts that are in there, the browns, and I'm not a super expert on the different strains. But those are the three trout that you find in the Owens. And then the other two species in the eastern Sierra is there are brooks and goldens. But neither okay. of those are in the Owens. Okay, okay. And uh, you said earlier none of these uh, fisheries other than the lower Owens are, are really floatable because they're too small. So so I, I expect that is the waiting, uh, is it easily accessible? Sounds yeah, like it's, it. user yeah. it's user friendly for sure. So, I mean, I yeah. have, you know, clients sign liability release forms on every trip. And it's hard for me to drown someone, you know, in this part of the world. <laughs> so, you know, sure, be careful. But you know, you're you're waiting, and maybe something that's, that's shin deep. It's uh, it's super user friendly for waiting. It, it's a, uh, it's not the Pitt River up in Northern California. It's not the right. Pitt, we just right, yeah. It, we just talked known. about the Pitt uh, last week, in fact. As well. Yeah, that's one of my favorite rivers in the world. Pitt three. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the waiting is crazy. I like it because the waiting is is like you know Rambo adventures is what it is so exactly exactly so good good public access in all these areas you said earlier um peter rogers wrote and he's from sonoma california and um he uh, says does it snow on the upper versus the lower owens and and how do they fish in the winter it's a great question peter it's a good one too so yeah it snows on the upper o during during good winters and you got you know 
outfitters like you know Sierra Drifters, guys like Doug Dolan and, and Doug Rodericks, you know they'll they'll sweat up their clients, or you'll snowshoe in. So it's um, it is uh, a place that does attract snow. When there's snow on the ground, what do I do? I go ski on the mountain, and then I go fish the lower Owens. Um, excuse me, in the wintertime in the afternoon. So I'm not, if steelhead I could see chasing in, in the wintertime, but I'm not a big cold trout fisher. So I know there are people that live and die and breathe it, but that's just not who I am. So the upper Owens can have bad winters, right? Lots of snow. The lower Owens, it will snow every now and then, and it's super pretty when it does. And we're probably talking about no more than three or four inches. And you might have an epic mayfly hatch at 1030 come off in the snow, and it's just an unbelievably beautiful place. So I would say the Lower Owens and Bishop is a fairly unintimidating place in regards to snowfall. Um, the Upper Owens can be a concern, and you best be knowing what you're doing also. So, you know, we get major winter snowstorms that come through here. Don't drive your Prius up here in January if you don't look at the, you know, the weather report first. It's uh, it's important to know what you're doing. I mean, it's there's some value to being comfortable of being in winter conditions if you're going to travel here in the winter time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Any any time in the mountains, you know, I'm out here in the Rockies, and it can be beautiful, sunny on one side of the mountain, <laughs> blazing blizzard on the other side. So um, you never know what you're going to get. Hey, uh, what about you? Just mentioned mayfly hatches on the lower Owens, uh, upper Owens. What kind of hatches do you get up there? Right now, there's a little caddis hatch going on in the afternoon. We had a great time at like four o'clock. You know, a small caddis that were flying around. So. You know, the tricos are out in the morning in the middle of the summer. You get a variety of mayflies, BWOs, you know, PMDs, your, your standard your standard kind of, you know, bug Thanks, activity yeah. that you'd expect. So midge activity on, on Hot Creek. I was fishing Hot Creek. Uh, in Hot Creek at Owens, guys, they're very close to each other. So I talked about a lot of them uh, really kind of in relation to each other. And, I mean, I'll do a full-day trip of maybe, you know, morning on Owens, good lunch, afternoon Hot Creek or vice versa. And the Hot Creek, we were fishing, the start of summer, we were fishing size 26 midge patterns because that's what the fish were eating, were these tiny, tiny midge or gnat patterns. So um, Owens, though, generally tends to be, you know, there's some pretty healthy uh, caddis activity. Hopper action, as I mentioned, is off the hook good in June and July. I don't think you're going to find really a place around that has this fun hopper action and the grass is, is full-blown, you know, bloom before the, the cow has devastated it. So it's uh, the hopper action terrestrials is just really really fun. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, um, what about uh, any particular fly patterns that uh, you prefer? It's a good question. Do I let out my secrets right now over the internet or not, right, Roger? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's what we that's what we say we do. Just read our homepage. Right. I, I got to extract right, all the secrets from uh, these guides and gurus. Okay, I'm going to have to answer this question the way that I answer to absolutely everyone who always asks me what fly do I need to use. And my answer to that question is how are you planning on rigging that fly? So I'm sorry to throw this at you, you know, when you ask, like, what's your favorite fly pattern? But I think that, honestly, when you ask a question, what's your favorite fly pattern, I think that's one of the most overrated questions, overused questions there is in trout fly fishing. And this is me, Chris Leonard, you know, kind of guide, educator speaking. But the question people need to be asking, and some of you guys that have heard me before speak have heard me say this, is not what fly should I use, but it's, it's, it's what, how should I present the fly that I'm fishing the day of, all right? And so, sure, there are sometimes there are exceptions to these rules. There were sometimes the summer when the trout were keen on a more of a tan-colored grasshopper than a bright yellow, and then a couple weeks later they were keen on maybe a bright yellow-colored grasshopper. So fly color choice size matters. 
But Roger, I'm such a profound believer in really how you present your fly is so much more critical than the fly that you choose. And my argument to this is, I mean, we've all read, well, if you haven't, you need to, all right, because you're missing out. Um, Sheridan Anderson's The Curtis Creek Manifesto. It's the greatest book ever written, period, all right? So um, he says in there he could catch any trout in the world with a size 16 hair's ear, and that's a legit statement, all right? I probably could, too. What would if I had one fly in the world that would be my fly of choice? It would probably be a size 18 bead headless pheasant tail. If you turn over any rock in any river system in the American West, there's there's little brown squiggly stuff underneath that looks like a size 18 pheasant tail. That's trout food. That's what they eat. And so, I'm giving you guys my fly of choice, a size 18 pheasant tail. What you do with that is more critical than my suggestion. Okay, if you do not put the proper split size shot on and proper placement of split shot on your rigging, that trout's not going to see that fly, right? If you put on too little, it swings up over its head. If you put on too much, it, it hooks grass, it hooks rocks. So, so many times I'm asked, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked, what's your favorite fly, you know, I'd, I'd be a wealthy person. And my response to that is, well, what's your favorite size split shot, right? So it's kind of, <laughs> I really, no, it's true, Roger. I mean, presentation sure. is everything, right? And so fly fishers are the strange group of people, let's be honest, like, oh, I tie this fly that only works on months, you know, ending, you know, on, on the second full moon of, of the lunar year, according to the Grecan calendar. Right? It's not. Throw that out the door, right? It's sure. I, I'm sure your, your fly pattern works well for you. But so does my size 18 pheasant tail. And so what is it? Trout are eclectic eaters. They can be picky at times. We know that. All right, hot creek size 26, you know, Mitch patterns, yeah, that's a super picky fish. But most fish, right, are going to at some point open their mouth and grab that size 18 pheasant tail if they see it. The critical thing for me is how do I present it so the fish sees it. Fish don't eat what fish don't see. So that's my well, long Let's go there. Long so let's yeah. go there, Chris. Uh, let's talk about how you present on uh, Owens River and, and Hot Creek. Are you doing dry dropper? Are you using indicators, no indicators? That's what, a great question. Uh, how, what, and that's, what the, the kind of question? It's a great question. The answer to that is what's going on at the time, right? So during right. heavy flows, obviously, you know, indicator or indicatorless with heavy split shot would work really well. You could do indicatorless because you're not fishing that far across, right? So indicatorless okay. is a tough thing for a lot of people, but if you understand high stick nymphing, it's a great place to high stick nymph. Um, dry dropper during lower flows. Why? Because there's less water in there. So you don't need, you know, you, you get your flies hung up on um on the bottom with the weight. And, you know, I, I'm a really believer in that beadhead, bead head, uh, you know, or any sort of uh, weighted wet fly for trout is, I like them for a dry dropper configuration because that bead head drops the fly into the water film. I do not like them when I'm fishing wet flies only because I think it, it creates a false kind of sense of, of turbulence tumbling through the water column. I think that a fly without a bead head has a more natural flow to it and that split shot's doing the bottom of keeping that fly down and then the, the fly is kind of tumbling more naturally where that bead head is going to skip down more towards the bottom so i know it's just it's once again it's that question of what's going on at the time i mean how i fish you know the owens today is, is considerably different from how i fished it six weeks ago which is incomparably different from how i fished it six weeks before that so but that's mm -hmm. the thrill of the sport that's where we come back to this day in and day out because I go to the Owens, I, I stick 16, I come back, I brag to my neighbor, I go back the next day, I get two. And I ask myself, well, what did I do wrong today, right? So it's, uh, you know, that's, that's the fun of it, is it's, it's the thrill of the hunt. And, and how you present, given the circumstances of the time, results in whether you have a successful day on the river or not. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. And since you've been um, crossing over to Hot Creek, let's, uh, let's talk about Hot Creek when we come back. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Chris Leonard about Mammoth Lakes fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Chris a question, just go to our homepage, AskAboutFlyFishing.com, and fill in your question there and send it, and we'll try to get it answered. Let me uh, check in here. Um, uh, okay. Earlier I was talking about Phil McCartney. He is a math teacher at uh, Northern Kentucky University, it looks like. So, um, and Let's see. One is on Crowley. We'll get to that in a bit different. And you've kind of, uh, Kathleen was asking about uh, differences between summer and winter fly fishing in eastern Sierra. You've kind of addressed some of that, but as we go further, you might want to keep that in mind, Chris. Uh, well, those different fishers. Yeah, and then uh, that's another Crowley Lake. Uh, and so, okay, good. Um, uh, do you know Rick Haggard? Rick Haggard. I don't know if I know a Rick Haggard. Okay. I might. <laughs> I don't know, because the question, the question is, uh, Rick wants to know if a newbie fly fisher can hook a trout within five minutes. <laughs> sure, if I take you to the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> can I answer that question, please, Roger? Can I yeah, answer that sure. question? All right, so is this Rick who answered this? All right, Rick, you got to hear me preach my set of ethics right now. And so I don't fish spawning fish, right? And so... That's just, I believe that spawning fish should be left alone. And, you know, spawning fish are easy targets. If you want to hook a fish in five minutes, you know, you find a river system that's loaded with spawners, you walk on that hole, you, you hook you hook one in five minutes, you, you did your duty, right, you're, you're all stoked. It's, uh, I mean, sure, you can. I'll give you another really good example, all right, and we're going to talk about the East Walker. The East Walker up in, by Bridgeport uh, is a badass fly fishery, the, the late Antonio Chief uh, Justice Scalia fished it for three days, loved it. It's just, it's a great place. It's flowing at 24 cubic feet per second right now today. To give you some reference point, in the summertime, it flows usually around 150 to 300. So 24 cubic feet per second is a trickle, right? So where do those fish go? They all go hole up in the same six spots on the water that can accommodate a bucket. And so one guy last winter posted on Facebook, man, I've never had a day in my life at the East Walker. I hooked 50 fish today. It was like February something. I got on the Internet. I looked at it. The flows were at 22 cubic feet per second, all right? So can you hook a fish in five minutes? 
if you're fishing the East Walker River at 22 cubic feet per second? I, I hope so. All right. Should you? No. So it's, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, this is kind of like through the process of fly fishing, you know, in the start of fly fishing, we want to go out and get, you know, a lot of fish. Then we want to get a big fish. Then we want to get a lot of fish. And, and then at some point you reach a stage where you just, you know, you enjoy just doing it. And, you know, I crossed that bridge a long time ago. And for me, it's, it's not a, a numbers thing. You know, the, your fish will come. So in the world of instant gratification that we live in today, I mean, I experienced a lot of this being a high school teacher and people wanting instantaneous gratification. But, dude, if, if your objective is to go to the river and catch a fish in five minutes, that's, that's not why I do this. I go to the river to get away from it all, and I, I, I'm, I'm hoping it might take me some days three hours to get my first fish because that way I don't have to re-enter society again until three hours later. So that's, um, there are places I can take you on a good day where you will have a fish in five minutes, okay? That, that can be done under the right circumstances on the right day. But I've also, my last trip to Belize, I, I went down there, hired Will Flack, spent, uh, you know, six days chasing permit. I came back, you know, skunk, zero, goose egg, nothing. <laughs> incredibly fun time it's just you know it's just the thrill of the hunt is what it is so yeah i could take you to a place to catch a fish in five minutes but that's not what i'm going to do so hey chris you must be in the same belize fly fishing club that i'm in zero permit so far <laughs> no let me take that back that was my last trip roger i've been I've oh been okay so you... i've been six times and my first one ever was the 25 pounder back in 2017 oh well I, then you're way ahead I've of me. Landed, yeah. yeah i've landed maybe five or six over the years so i love belize belize is really fun so oh me too that's one of my favorite places so uh, we'll have to talk about that another time um so hot creek let's talk about hot creek and uh you said it's near uh upper owens yeah hot creek actually flows into the owens eventually i mean okay. i fished there a lot the actual the confluence where it actually flows into the owens so hot creek is just such an unbelievably fun fishery if you guys want to you know, and I should have mentioned this earlier. If you get on our website, Pritchard Sports, you might have to poke around a little bit, but I put together some PowerPoints that I built for summertime fishing in Mammoth and wintertime fishing in Bishop. And if you find on our website, um, you can find the PowerPoints that are built there. They will give you visuals to what we're talking about today. Um, Hot Creek, also, if you if you look up hotcreekranch.com, you'll see photographs from Kevin Peterson, who manages the ranch there, and it'll give you an idea of what that place looks like. Hot Creek is is um it's everything trout fishing is supposed to be you know it's just a perfect kind of environment for fish where there's rocks weeds uh you know some some gradients in some parts some some flatter parts and other parts uh undercut banks um you know curves bends straight runs a little of everything and so it's just uh it's a super pretty place where at some parts, you might cast, you know, way across the far bank, and by that I only mean 35 feet, you know, with your hopper pattern in summertime and drop it right on the fish and, and hook them. And other times, you're catching fish right at your feet. I mean, these, these fish are, are used to human presence, and so they don't spook really easily. They are they can be selective on fly choice. All right, I take back what I say about fly choice. Hot Creek is one of those places where fly selection does matter. But fly presentation is also super critical there. So it's, uh, you know, you drive in there um, – Right past Hot Creek Airport, you come in there, and you can either fish at the interpretive site, which is about 500 yards of public access, a lot of fun, before it gets closed off to the ranch. Hot Creek Ranch, for you guys also, so you understand this, is it's a pay-to-play place. It's not strictly private. It's if you want to book it for three or four nights, you can. And it's got these Spartan but very clean cabins. 
um, on it. And I think there's eight or nine of them, three rods total per day per cabin. So you're looking at maybe three miles of, of fish, four miles of fishable creek if you were to stretch it out with only maybe 28 rods on it at a time. So a lot of space. It is purest traditional dry fly only. All right, and when there's major winter runoff in May, June, Kevin will, will let you nymph fish. Otherwise, he'll kick you off if you're nymph fishing. But that's kind of a sacred spot, and it's a good place because those fish don't get fished too heavily because a lot of the toads you see at the bottom aren't being fed wet flies. And then you get to the canyon section. And the canyon section has multiple characteristics, too. You get the top part kind of can be pretty technical, lower water, weeds early on, um, you know, a wider creek for casting. Then the first part, kind of where the first parking lot is, there's some gradient in there. It's uh, it's a little more turbulent. It's uh, some really fun pockets in there. You know, high stick indicator licit or dry flies, whatever suits you. And then kind of the, the lower part of the canyon. And eventually it flows into the, um, or it becomes rather, the, the geothermal area. And so Hot Creek has a name because it is a hot creek. Uh, below the fishable area, is where basically the earth's inner core seeps into uh, the surface. And so it used to be a bathing spring area. There are still people that, that do bathe there. I think Forest Service um, cut that off a few years ago when some woman died of hypothermia down there. But in any event, um, there's several miles of fishless parts of Hot Creek because the alkali content is too high and the water temps are too high. And um, then it flows into the Owens. Some of the fish from the Owens do migrate up Hot Creek, and Kevin's told me that I think I've heard Kevin say that, that during super high runoff years, those fish can, uh, can, can sneak up from the Owens through the geothermal area into the actual fishable hot creek. But we're talking about hot creek now, I think today is flowing at like, it looks like four cubic feet per second, right? And 11 is, is kind of pretty good. Yeah, pretty thin water right now, right? That might not have been accurate. I mean, I, I think it's closer to like eight or nine, so it's pretty skinny water right now. Enough to hold the fish, but, you know, during a major may june runoff it could crank it upwards of like 250 so when you get these massive runoffs it's great it flushes out the river right cleans out the silt gives it a new characteristic and that might allow for those owens river fish to move up into hot creek but generally speaking it's uh kind of a self-contained fishery because it's on the lower end of the public access is a barrier for fish because of searing hot temperatures from geothermal activity and at the top is just the spring where it originates so there's nothing up there so and it's generally i think it's safe to fish year round you know you don't get the lake fish don't move up there during the spawn seasons because they can't they're blockaded from the uh the, the hot water so they move up into the owens so i don't see anything wrong with fishing hot creek year round for my set of ethics that i talked about for you know dealing with spawning fish and such but it's just it's a pretty creek and it's you know it's how would i compare it to anything I mean, I saw in one of the questions that someone wanted to know about the fire hole in Yellowstone Park, and I can't, I can't uh, answer that because I haven't fished that. Um, mm -hmm. There's just nothing that comes to my mind, and Hawk Creek is its own place, really, to be honest. So. Uh, and Peter Rogers was asking about how to, how it fishes in the winter. Is is it similar to the Owens then in the winter? It depends on the winter. So, I mean, first, if you have major snow, it's hard to get into. You'd have to snowshoe in, which would be a lot of fun, but you have to get in there. You might get some really good mayfly hatches mid-morning there in the middle of the winter. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there are people that fish it all season long. So okay. um, it's, it's not the same as the Owens for the reason I just explained, that those, those rainbows move up, you know, January, February from the lake to do their spawn thing in the Owens. So you get those big rainbows, the spawning fish in the Owens, that are not present in Hot Creek because of the, the water temp barrier. So there are different fish that live in there. And 
Are they the same? I'd say no, they're not. They're very different, actually. It's, uh -huh. uh, and that's kind of the fun thing about this is you can have two very unique experiences, only a 10-minute drive from each other, fishing Hot Creek and then deciding to hightail it down to the Owens. They are, I'd say they're more different than similar. So uh, Tom Paulson had, uh, from Bing Pine had a bunch of questions. I think you've kind of been through all these about, uh, you know, how you fish uh, the Owens and so forth. Sounds like it's similar to Hot Creek. Um, sounds like there's bigger fish in, in Owens than Hot Creek just because of the, the access, right? And, it depends uh, on the time of year thing, you know, what, what fish are moving up, what season. My client yeah. uh, Sunday, um, he stuck an 18-incher with the streamer, so it came unbuttoned, but I didn't see it, but, he, you know, his eyes got as big as saucers, and he looked at me from across the river, oh, my God, this thing is 18 inches, had it on for about 10 seconds, and it popped off. So there are some really nice fish that are in there. And, you know, it's, I would say comparable quality between the fish really is what it's after. So I think there's a larger brown population in Hot Creek than there is the Owens. The Owens tends to okay. have more of the little wild rainbows. There are some browns in there, but most of the fish I think you catch in the Owens tend to be um, – well, they're browns too. I mean, we've got a whole bunch of cookie cutter browns with on hoppers this summer, but I think it lean more top heavy on the rainbow side. Okay, Tom did ask about uh, hopper patterns. Any particular pattern you like better than others? Well, it's time of year thing, Tom. Like I mentioned earlier, so I mean, the, you know, I think that the fish keen in on different hopper patterns during different times of summer. And there was a time period there when when tan ones was the color of choice. And then we had one in the shop called a panty ripper, I think was the name of it. It's this foam, bright yellow one. And, and they, you couldn't do any wrong with it. I mean, every time it hit the water, they'd eat the daylights out of this thing. And then, then we moved into a, a tan color variation of that, that fly. And so I think just being observant. I mean, hoppers change, right? At the start of the season, they're these tiny things. And I always get really stoked in the, you know, April when I see these. They look like the size of like a thumbtack, right, or even smaller than that. Like, you know, the, the baby hoppers coming around. And so hoppers grow and change themselves during the summertime. So it's, uh, you know, look at the hopper. I mean, they, yeah. they're going to land on you. you uh, right? let, me, let, let me ask it this way. Um, uh, do you prefer the kind of traditional tide hopper, like a Dave's hopper, or do you like the, do you go with more of the foam hoppers uh, that are more modern-day designs? I think, once again, Roger, the way to answer that question is I use what works. I mean, there were some days the Dave's hopper mm -hmm. was money. There were some days that traditional natural color-looking one was money, and there were other days when that, that crazy-looking uh, uh, panty ripper was working. Uh, Chernobyl ant, <laughs> yeah. I had days with a global Chernobyl ant, you know, glorious days with a Chernobyl ant. So it's not what I like. It's what the fish like, yeah. right? And so it's, uh, yeah. I mean, we all want that, that you know, that panea, hey, what's the magic fly that works 100% of the time? It's, it's called, what, is salmon eggs, right? It doesn't Pisces makes it or who makes it? So it's. Right? It's just yeah. a, your power bait. It's uh, you know, flies change. You, you have to change with the flies. Is what it is. Well, it's also it's also I think about because uh, many of the people I've interviewed, you know, it's about confidence too. Um, so as you said earlier, you know, you could use a pheasant tail, and because of your confidence and because fish eat it, you're going to do well with it if you keep fishing it. Uh, but you might do also well with a hare's ear in the same spot if you fish it all the time. So that's uh, yeah, that's the truth, right? You invite the new yeah. girlfriend over to the house as long as you're confident you're cooking, she's going to enjoy the meal, right? So it's about <laughs> the same way. It's the same. It's just be confident, yeah. right? Presentation yeah. is yeah. everything, right? Presentation is everything. Let's uh, let's see. We're running short on time, so uh, I'm going to skip this break and go right into. Um, well, we had a couple of questions here. Uh, Dave Silver in Los Angeles 
was asking about a technique maybe you can help him with. Uh, he says, I've been missing takes when nymphing downstream with or without an indicator. Could you suggest a hook set technique to help him correct his problem? Uh, you know, Dave, it's the sort of thing where a visual reference would help me be able to, to, to identify what the issue is. I'm trying to draw a picture in my mind of what you're talking about. I Since downstream hookups, so he's, he's probably pulling it out of the fish's mouth. I mean, that's if what I, the first thing that comes to mind is, is yeah. sure, is, is if you're, so if you're fishing, if you're fishing river left, all right, and you're a right-handed angler, and your indicator's going downstream, all right, and I would pull that, that fly downstream and across my body, right, downstream, and, and try to force it into the, the fish's mouth. So it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like you might be pulling it at you out of its mouth on the set, it's hard to tell really, you know, what it is without being on the water and seeing what the issue is. So, I mean, it's a reaction time. Is your reaction time off? Are you off by a half of a second? I mean, it, that said, is your indicator misplaced? I mean, it could be that, you know, that, that by the time that indicator is showing a strike, that fish has already spit because you've given your indicator a little bit too much um, distance away from the fly. So there's a variety of, of issues that could be going on that aren't working, and that's the troubleshooting of fly fishing is, you know, are, are you setting at a wrong angle? Are you setting too late? Is your placement of your indicator in the wrong place? It's, uh, th those are just questions that come to my mind without being on the river and seeing yeah. this. So it's, uh, okay. and we just have rubber hook days. I mean, let's be honest. There are days when we're fishing flies tied with rubber hooks. That just happens to all yeah, of us. Maybe, so. maybe try something different, you know, because you've got a couple options you could set up, you could set sideways up river, you could set sideways uh, uh, to river left. So um, the other thing, and the do, thing, do something different. Thing, yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, another thing, so let's identify where these fish are, okay? So they're holding in the, in the river below you. Okay, they're in that hole. Walk down to them and now cast above them and hook set right at them. So, I mean, where you are tactically standing on a yeah. river is also yeah. critical to your hook setting. So if these fish, if you're having a difficult time setting the hook below them, walk down to the fish, cast upstream, set the hook when you're 90 degrees across from them, and you might have more success there. So where you, you tactically go. stand is critical to fishing rivers because how does your fly swing? What drift do you pick up? Which drift do you avoid, right? I mean, it's like sometimes moving just your client over two feet or moving myself over two feet is the difference from hooking fish or not because maybe that middle channel is picking up the current and pulling the flies at me before the fish have a chance to see it, where if I move two feet down, the current is less to where my fly lands, and so it draws right past the fish. So my suggestion is walk closer to the fish, and that should probably eliminate the problem. There you go. Okay, let's talk, uh, Chris, about the San Joaquin. Tell us a bit about that uh, river slash creek. The San Joaquin is the most idyllic, prettiest, fishery in the eastern sierra second to none it's an alpine setting it's a western flowing river the water actually ends up in the bay area instead of los angeles so it's technically a western flowing creek it's um you drive up over the mountain ski area and drop down into the uh the valley there in order to fish it it was very inaccessible the last couple months i'll be honest with you guys it was i haven't been down there this summer so usually it's the access to get down there is you get on a shuttle a bus shuttle to go down there and 
um, that explore down from there. And so as a guide, you have privileged access to be able to drive your own truck and clients in. But I didn't go down there at all this summer because they, did, they weren't allowing bus transportation because of the COVID deal. And so there were no parking spaces down there. And then the Creek Fire came along, which is the, the largest historical continuous um, single fire in California's known history. And that's only like five or six miles from my house right now. Fortunately, there's a lot of granite at about 11 to 12,000 feet of separation between myself and the fire. So it's probably not going to reach Mammoth. And we're expecting snow uh, this Saturday. It's been burning continuously since September 5th. So for two straight months. So the smoke and air quality, yeah, it was just unthinkably bad. You know, I was going to go deer hunting back here this fall. You know, I'm off track now, but I didn't because of the, the, it just, they, they closed the forest. You're not going back there. So um, okay. under under normal circumstances, let's get back to normal circumstances, though. Under normal circumstances, you know, it's it's the prettiest creek in the area. And so you would take a bus, a shuttle service down there. Um, you get off, and you know, at your point of departure, and they pick you up, and the buses are constantly running. And it's uh, very much an alpine fishery, right? You're surrounded by, you know, junipers and, and uh, tamarack and all sorts of very beautiful um, alpine pines. There's some aspen, uh, wild green onions you can pick, you know, loop and a variety of wildflowers. It's a super pretty place. And it holds, uh, that's where you get the Eastern Sierra Grand Slam, which it holds goldens, 100% pure strength. You know, this guy asked about catching a fish in five minutes. I know a spot I could take someone and get a, a three-inch, 100% pure strain. If you just put your PA, uh, you know, atoms on the on the water. Um, there's there's pure strain goldens. There's hybrids. There's uh, rainbows. There's brooks, and there's browns. And it's possible to catch all of them in one day. So it's a it's a very very pretty place. It's the sort of place we're walking. You know, there's a variety of campgrounds on the the river, and so it's the sort of place where when you walk off the beaten path, you know, a half mile or more, you, you start to uncover fish that might be a little hungrier towards your fly because they see less pressure. So it's just it's just a super, super pretty place is what it is. is it, it, they're not big fish, but it, they're beautiful fish. Is it easy to, to, to wade there or to access? It depends, it's a, I'd say yes. I'd say generally okay. yes. The thing about it, if it's hard to wade, you're not going to be able to get there. because So there's a Forest Service gate at the top of the pass there, and the gate does not open until uh, most of the snow is melted off. And so that said, um, you could legally fish it if you wanted to uh, get on a road bike, bicycle, and bike up and bike down. You know, it opens up, I think, the last Saturday of April. You can legally fish it. You'd have a, a good exercise pedaling back up on your way out again. But it's generally speaking, it's not accessible then because it's by road because the Forest Service hasn't opened up the gate yet. So generally speaking, by the time the Forest Service has unlocked the gate, it, the fishing is really good because it's not that heavy snow melt has pushed through the water and the fish haven't seen flies in several months and they're hungry and they're going to have a grand old time. And then they close it again towards, you know, whenever the snow looks like it's going to fly. And I've fished a, which client that I take down there? It was, um, I think it was Tom Chapman, my buddy who lives down in, in Bishop. I fished him there about a year ago in October. Bitter cold towards the end of the season, super cold, you know, slower day on the water because the fish weren't just really active, but just super pretty. I mean, there's no one down there that time of year. And, um, so it, clear it's, me it's up. a lot of fun. I'm, yeah, I'm a little confused about the access there because you said you could only get there by shuttle bus or with a guide. Yeah, so let me, I'll, Roger, I will explain this, okay? Okay. So it is a dead-end road. When you, oh, okay. To get there, you, you drive up 203, all right, Highway 203 from Mammoth, towards Mammoth Mountain Ski Area. You go past the ski area. First of all, right, if the ski area is still open and they're skiing in, like, June, that road might not be accessible because the road – 
is actually part of the ski area. You might, you know, the skiers will be using the, the you know, the Tier 11 there. Part of Tier 11 actually, the runs go over the road. So once the road is plowed out, you get up to the top of what's called Minaret Vista. At the Minaret Vista point, there's a little um, kiosk, Forest Service kiosk. And so cars that have an overnight camping are allowed passage through there. Guides are allowed passage through there. Um, I think if you have a wilderness permit and you're going backpacking in the wilderness, you're allowed passage through there. But when you drive down into the, the valley there, it's, you know, it's a, basically like a one-way road up and down. And parking gets really tight down at the bottom. And it's a popular place with families because you also have Devil's Post Pile, which is a super unique rock formation, which is worth seeing. And you have Rainbow Falls and Lower Rainbow Falls. And you have, um, you got the Mule Pack Station, good tuna sandwiches, great milkshakes. So it's a really family-friendly place. Like, you know, the family's up in Mammoth for four days. They're not fishers. What do you do a day? You hike down the Rainbow Falls. So it sees a lot of foot traffic and a lot of tourism that's not fishing-related down there. So they have to balance out that tourism with the limited availability of parking spaces. So the way that they do that is there's a shuttle service. It's like four or five bucks that laps from Mammoth Mountain Main Lodge down along that road all the way to the end at the Red Meadows Pack Station and back out again. Shuttles leave like buses leave maybe every 20 minutes. So you basically, you know, you get on the bus for mm -hmm. five bucks. You, you go down there, you get off at whatever point you want, and then you, you get on again. So there are ways around that. I think it's 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's no one there prior to 6 at the kiosk, and there's no one there after 6 in the evening. So if you want to sneak past, it's not locked up. You could. And if you come back during regular hours, they charge you. But basically because it's governed by U.S. Forest Service. And so um, it, it's not inaccessible. It's just that you have to be aware of that, you know, yeah. under certain hours of the day, you're going to have to use public transportation under normal circumstances. Um, and and okay. because of the, we're talking about the Eastern Sierra, right? The elevation up there at the top is probably close to 10,000 feet where I'm talking about the kiosk is. So if you have a 500-inch winter in Mammoth Lakes, which does happen, there might still be, you know, 100 inches of snow on there in May, and you're going to have to wait another four weeks for that snow to melt off. So they yeah. don't open that, that pass because it's at about 10,000 feet until uh, it's appropriate. And that's true of a lot of the passes here. Tioga Pass, which is our eastern gateway to Yosemite, I'm only about an hour from Yosemite or two hours from the valley, right? That is a, a seasonal pass. A Sonora Pass yeah. above me is a seasonal pass. Um, so yeah. there are a lot of seasonal passes in, in this part of the world included, Minaret Vista Pass, which takes you down to the San Joaquin. So I hope that clarified. Yep. Okay. So we only have about 10 minutes left here. Um, tell me about, uh, well, we've still got uh, Rush Creek, Rock Creek, and Crowley Lake. I want to spend at least five minutes on, on Crowley Lake. So tell me about Rock Creek and Rush Creek rather quickly. Yeah, I'd rather say <laughs> more about Crowley because Crowley really demands some time. So I'll to keep it limited on Rush Creek and Rock Creek. Rock Creek is below me a little bit. It's up uh, by above Tom's place, just below the community of Crowley Lake. It's a super pretty Alpine Creek, really colored with the colorful, pretty with the, the change of colors in, in October and November. You know, a lot of aspen, a lot of wild fish, um, user-friendly. You can hike back. Another thing I did not mention that I need to, I think I mentioned it really briefly early on, but there's hiking all around here that takes you to these, these backcountry lakes. And so that's true of the Rock Creek Canyon, too. You could, you could really, what needs to be said is if you're going to go back there, I'd go and fish some of the lakes. And look, there are monster browns, you know, four or five brown predator browns in these, these lakes there, you know, streamer patterns. If you're really feeling up for it, you know, packing a, a float tube back a couple of miles would be a great way to spend the day. And I've done that 
So Rock Creek is south of, of Mammoth Crowley, and uh, it's a really pretty place. The pack stations will also pack deer in and out for you overnight. I actually, for the first time this last summer, guided a multi-day trip with the family up by Hilton Lakes by Rock Creek. That was a lot of fun. We rode horses to some some higher-level lakes, and it was a great time, cater trip. And so um, Rust Creek is out of the June Lake area, and Rust Creek um, is uh, it has a few characteristics. It flows from Silver Lake through kind of uh, the lower part of the loop there to Grant. Right now the, the browns are moving up in there, big browns that are spawning. I saw a photo on Facebook yesterday of some family that, that hooked and released like some massive eight-pound spawning brown. It's, it's a point of contention. They are going to close it next. Uh, California, I'm sure you, a lot of you guys are aware of, is, is redoing their regs, and they're talking about closing that during the brown spawn period to protect them. Below Grant is kind of the wild section. Uh, you get little wild browns, little rainbows, a lot of fun. You know, 10 car rod stuff. 10 car rod, okay. size 16 parachute atoms, you're fine. So Crowley, okay. we should discuss, Roger. So fire yeah, let's question go about Crowley. And so, uh, yeah, where is Crowley from you? Okay. Crowley is, is a very close drive for me. Crowley, the community of Crowley Lakes is a small little collection of, oh, I don't know, under 2,000 full-time residents there, I think, that live on the western side of the lake. And so Crowley is just a stone throw from me. I mean, I'm from my door to my boat. I have a, I do keep a boat in the water there all summertime. It's, you know, 15 minutes. It's really, really close. Uh, it's a slightly mm -hmm. lower elevation. Crowley might be in the 7,000 range instead of like 7,500. So, but it's kind of like the setting I think is really beautiful. It's, you know, you're, everything below you, you're looking at the mountains from down towards like uh, McGee, up to McGee Canyon, up towards like, you know, Bloody Mountain and up to Mammoth Mountain Ski Area, up to the June Lake Ski Area. And, Above us, and it's just a super pretty setting. And then the White Mountains, the Glass Mountains, are on the other side. And so Crowley is—it's about five miles, I'd say, from end to end. It's kind of the most perfect sized lake, in my opinion. It's not too big, and it's not too small. So my little bass tracker skips from about one side to the next in about 12, 15 minutes, right? A little—it's uh, got a 50 horse Yamaha on it, a little 16 foot tracker. And um, generally, uh, you know, it fishes with. It's not uncommon to have days there when you're you're fishing and you're you're indicator fishing. It's all mostly indicator fishing from a boat, and you're having double digit days with trout that are you know in the two, three, four, five pound range. It's got some super healthy fish that are in there. If you want to catch the big fish in the Eastern Sierra, that's the place to go. A, a big part about it is when the bite's on, right? So you know early season they're spread out because the water temperature is pretty uniform throughout most of the lake on the colder side. So they're pretty comfortable in highly oxidated parts of all of the, the lake. Then as summer progresses and air temps heat up, they, they concentrate into those, those you know, the tributaries that flow into there. And the major one would be the Owens. Another major one is McGee. Hilton is a smaller one. So the, the fish, you might need to hunt them down. And so the fish in that lake are looking for the cold water source. They're looking for muddy ground. The mud is where the, the midges hatch. So, you know, we're midge fishing, corona midge fishing, as they call it up north of me in, in Oregon and Washington. Usually pattern range, you know, anywhere from 16, 18, maybe 14, start of the season. Uh, you know, color variation helps, so just be aware of what's going on. I would suggest tying your own flies, which probably is beneficial. I mean, some guys out there, you know, Ernie, uh, Bully, Joe, and Paulie, they tie their own flies. They make these beautiful-looking patterns, and towards the end of the season, they seem to, to, to hook more fish than I do, and I think a reason for that is because they're fishing flies that – that have been educated over, you know, several weeks of the season. You know, some great tried-and-true patterns like Mickey Barron. You know, you can buy in the, the shop there, his, his Red Baron, his Copper Tigers. I mean, some stuff that just really works well. You know, the bugs tend to be 
um, what is it, smaller towards the end of the season. You know, they start off big. And so, you know, I was hooking them recently. When I say recently, I mean the end of the season, you know, September-ish. You know, just the black and, and silver zebra um, midge was working just fine. So that said, uh, Jerry, generally yeah. – Jerry uh, Watkin in uh, in San Diego uh, was asking the most effective methods, and can you successfully fish from a float tube, or do you really need a, to fish it from a boat? Can you fish it from shore? Uh, shore is hard, Roger. Shore shore is really okay. hard because you really need to find the fish. So there are sometimes, like right now with the browns that have moved in right to the tributary spawning, sure you can hook them in, in Whiskey Creek, but in, under most circumstances you need to be over the fish. And so up at the north end, you know, or Green Banks or some of the McGee whiskey, a float tube can be killer. I mean, float, I've seen tubers have better days than guys on boats. Uh, I like having a boat because you can skip around from part A to part B really quickly, and it'd be hard for me to get a couple dogs in my float tube, right? A lot of people have seen that really know that my dogs – my dogs are my number one fishing companions, but i got three now with, with Tao, so I have no idea the young puppy I just got. I have no idea how that's going to unfold um, next summer, but I'll worry about that, that bridge when I have to cross it. But – um, I think float tube uh, or or um, or boat. So, so boat access is done right there through the uh, Crowley Lake um, Fish Camp at Adam and Abbey Run. Uh, friendly staff that works there. Float tube you could access from in the north end by the Green Church Drive down, uh, or over in Layton Springs on the far side, or right there at the gate too in Whiskey. It's not that hard. I, I would advise for you float tubers at Crowley to be aware of how far out in the lake you go because. Generally speaking, the wind clock does kick in. You know, we use around between 11 and 12. That switch comes on, and with five minutes, it goes from calm to blowing. And it could be a wet, uh, possibly even dangerous scenario if you get um, wind and chop and you're out there in a tube. So just look at the weather report, which is common sense for any fly fishing anywhere in the world you're going. So okay. just find the I fish. Some, uh, find fish. Yeah, I got some questions that came in on the Internet, so let me roll through them here. Uh, George Hall in Yuba City, California. He says, what's the best area for float tubing in Crowley and what, what to watch out for? I don't know if Other he means what to watch out for. To... <laughs> no, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe he means what to watch out for as far as finding fish, maybe? Uh, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. What's the number one way to find where the fish are in Crowley? Facebook, right? I mean, I can take three weeks off of Crowley, go play out in the American West, come back, get on Facebook, look at all the posts, and I look, read the background and then know where the fish are. I mean, there really aren't that many secrets <laughs> in the world. It's true, right, Roger? Yeah. Social media has been a blessing, but it's also been a destruction of fly fishing. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's a, and there's, Crowley is such a heavily hit place that if you get on Eastern Sierra Fishing or Eastern Sierra Fly Fishing, the Facebook pages, or there's also a Crowley Lake Fly Fishing, or excuse me, Crowley Lake Fishing Facebook page. And just follow the Facebook pages and read the background and understand, or just pop in the shops. I mean, you know. The shops are not going to lie to you. It's just, you know, they'll, they'll tell you the fish are in McGee or the fish are in the north end. Or they'll, they'll be honest and say, you know, they're in 10 to 14 feet or they're in 30 feet. You know, so it's, uh, it's uh, where are they, what to look out for. I think that there's so much information out there today that it's, it can be overwhelming and there's maybe a little bit too much, it's, uh, which is better for those looking for the quick fix than not enough. But if you're just doing your research before you come up and, and cruise Facebook and, you know, pop in a shop and ask someone and you know what you're doing, they're going to point you in the right direction and say, yeah, the fish right now are north end, you know, nine feet, you know, uh, red pattern's working good right now. So it's it's not hard yeah. to find the fish in Crowley. I'd say it's one of the least sacred places in the eastern Sierra. Okay, Phil uh, in, in Kentucky says he just saw that Crowley Lake has a regulation that the minimum length for keepers is 18 inches. He says, so that, does, that begs the question, are there are lots of 18-inch uh, and bigger trout in Crowley? 
Yes, there are. Let me explain it for you guys who don't live in California. I'll explain to you right now. California Department of Fish and Wildlife is going through a midlife crisis, and they're talking about rewriting the regulations, um, the simplification of regulation process, I think they call it, for over 500 fisheries. And so they really are undecided with what they're going to do with Crowley. Uh, if we're talking about what, how the regs read right now, so it's um, at the start of season, which is the last Saturday of April, it opens up for any method, uh, bait, fly, barbs, uh, five fish, any size, well, your six-inch minimum, whatever it is. I don't ever kill trout, so it doesn't matter. Any, any method, right? And so, and then it changes over in August 1st, it changes to barbless only, flies or lures only, eight to, minimum of or maximum of two fish, I think 18 inches in length, and we call those illegal fish. So, yeah, there are some huge fish that are in there. There's also, uh, let me take back about what I said about killing fish. The only fish that I, that I do actually really kill, is, uh, it has a large Sacramento perch population. It has some very, very healthy Sacramento perch in there. You know, it's not uncommon to get a perch that's over two pounds, and while they're hard to clean, if you can clean a perch, you can make some really good beer-battered uh, tacos out of them. So, um, I mean, my neighbor said one day there, they went out for Scotty Blair, is a guy who works there on the lake, and Scotty and, and Hodges and who else joined them? I forgot the third person, Ryan, who also works there. They, they came back with 97 perch from one afternoon of fishing. So <laughs> a lot uh, of cleaning. Yeah, <laughs> well, 20 to 30 pounds is some of the best-tasting neutral white meat you can find for freshwater yeah. fish, to be honest, yeah. Roger. So, yeah. um, so the rigs depend on the season, but once again, you know, be aware of what you're fishing today, but California itself is going through a – a midlife crisis and trying to figure out what it's going to do. So just kind of be yeah. aware of, you know, what's going on. Okay, really quick answers to these. Uh, how does the Tenkara fare, how does the Tenkara setup fare in Mammoth? Is it gaining popularity? I think Tenkara is gaining popularity worldwide. So less yeah. is more, okay. right? I mean, some people laugh at it like I did until I tried it, and then I realized that your presentation with the Tenkara rod can be superior to a, a Western rod in small creeks because of the way that the fly hinges. You know, rather than, if you're fishing 30 feet across, rather than fishing with a 9-foot rod and having 20 feet, 21 feet of, of uh, line on the water that's manipulated by all these drifts, if you're fishing a 13-and-a-half-foot Tankara rod that goes straight up with a 17-foot line that goes straight down, your ability to present your flies is superior. Um, yeah, I just yeah. believe that. So okay. I think Tankara Quick, is gravitating Short answer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Roger. Craig Williams in uh, Plymouth, California, he says, uh, does Howard Archelaris still commercially accommodate fishermen on the Upper Owens? The Archelaris Ranch. Archelaris? Archelaris Ranch, I do not believe so. So I do not okay. believe so. Um, okay. Sorry, Craig. No, no information there. Uh, let's see, uh, Treg Owings in uh, Idaho, I think he's talking about the San Joaquin, he says, do you need waders and can you wear them on the bus? Sure, you can wear them on the bus, absolutely, okay. and you do not, wading boots in the summertime, waders in the winter, yes. Okay, okay, good. Okay, last question uh, from Phil in Ken Kentucky, he says, if I want to fish in relative solitude in this area, where would I go? Oh. There's hundreds of miles of fisheries in the backcountry we didn't even talk about. So that's what the other. That's a great closing question. Is you've got access to trails everywhere, all over the place where there's no one around. So that's a great question that to sum this up with. Is the Eastern Sierra is a vast region with lots of alpine lakes, lots of creeks that flow in and out of alpine lakes. There's if you want to walk, 
you're going to go and find absolute solitude. Okay, great. All right, thanks. Stick with me now. Um, Chris, we've got a, a bit more material to cover here, and we're going to do some giveaways I want you to help me out with. So uh, sure. stick with me, and um, we're going to wrap it up here with the Q&A. Uh, we also are going to be giving away that one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and that book from Stackpole Books. Uh, so hang with me, folks, and uh, we'll be right back. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Thousands of fishermen and 31 Alaska native tribes depend on Bristol Bay every day. Pebble Mine will poison Bristol Bay with over 10 billion tons of toxic waste, which threatens to destroy their livelihoods. The only way to stop it is to act now. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org. That's SaveBristolBay.org forward slash tell President Trump. So SaveBristolBay.org forward slash tell President Trump. Trump. And there you can sign up a petition to stop this uh, mine from going forward and to voice your concern and to get involved and to help save one of the most beautiful places in the world. So uh, do that and uh, let's help save that fishery. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and leave us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just go there and Fill in the, the form and let us know what you think. Now it's time to give away the prizes. Um, our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do some for our next show. You don't want to miss out on some of these great prizes we have to offer, so make sure you get registered. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Fly Fishers International deals with both cold water, warm water, salt water, and is international, as they say, around the world. So, And they work in a lot of conservation efforts. Great, great organization to support. So if you don't win tonight, go join. Uh, let me fire up the database here. And do a select, and it looks like Andy Cordova in uh, Nevada uh, has won the membership to the Fly Fishers International. So congratulations, Andy. I know Andy's been listening to our show for many years, so uh, congrats to you. Um, now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, courtesy of Amato Books, another great publisher of fly fishing uh, books and periodicals. So check them out at amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is Robert Patterson in New York. Robert Patterson. So congrats, Robert. I'm sure you'll enjoy your subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So now we'll give away, courtesy of Stackpole Books, one of their books from a list that I have here. And um, you answer this question on the home page of our website in the same place that you've asked questions during the show. So you can go there now and... This is a two-part question tonight. Um, the, so uh, the first fishery, uh, I want to know what fishery has uh, two dams on it, 
two dams that uh, that Chris talked about. The second fishery I want to know about is where I can catch golden trout. Okay, so first fishery, two dams. Second fishery, golden trout. I need both of those answers to for you to win. So go ahead and that, fill that in. So Chris takes him a minute to hear me because there's a slight delay in the broadcast. So um, and then they got to type it in. So we have to entertain them in the meantime. Uh, so how was skiing <laughs> this year? Oh, it was great until the mountains closed, right? It was, uh, I mean, Mammoth Mountain is, is a world-class ski area. It's, uh, you know, I moved here to ski. And the thing that's unique about Mammoth is that we get copious amounts of snow on really challenging terrain of a massive ski area with lots of comfortably warm days of uh, lots of sunlight. So it's just, it's a skier's paradise. It could be crowded during the weekends, so if you can pull it off during the midweek, it's really a, a weekend destination, not a... Uh, you know, a destination resort, um, I'd say coming up and ski it, you know, and bring your fly rod and uh, and look me up, right? We'll, um, we can get together and, you know, uh, point you yeah, out my direction uh, something like that. So, so they closed uh, your, your ski areas down too because of COVID? Is that what happened? Yeah, the last day that they skiered, I think it was March 13th, was that crazy day. That was one of those twilight zone days of 2020, right? Yeah. And all the shops yeah. throughout the country lost food. And then it snowed the, the 14th and they shut down the 15th. And they did not yeah. reopen again for the season. So they're planning on going full steam ahead this season with restrictions in regards to, like, you know, uh, access and lodges and stuff like that. Um, they are encouraging the tourism. I think that's good. It's uh, Our town is 100% dependent on it, uh, much more than the fishing. The skiing is really what drives this economy in our place. And yeah. it's an outdoor recreation. And truth be told, I believe that any form of outdoor recreation is the chance of getting COVID is significantly low. So Yeah, um, yeah. Well, the same thing happened here in Colorado. Yeah, we got shut down, and uh, but they're determined to open this year, I think, one way or the other. So uh, we'll Good. see what happens. Yeah. Okay, I think we got a winner. Um, the answer is the Owens River and the San Joaquin. Is that correct? The first two were the dams. The Owens River is correct, right? You got PVR and you yep. got Crowley. What was the second question? I think what was the question. Golden Trout. Golden yep. Trout. That's the winner. Winner chicken dinner. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's Craig Williams, Plymouth, California. Craig Williams. So congratulations, Craig, uh, for getting those right answers in quickly and for paying attention and taking notes. And uh, sounds like you have an opportunity to fish up there if you haven't already since uh, you are in California. Of course, that's like a whole country. So <laughs> it could be a long drive. He is away, but he yeah, is. He okay. 14 hours to steelhead uh, last week, so it's worth doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks, Greg, for playing, and um, that uh, really kind of closes things up for tonight. Chris, it's a pleasure talking to you and, and having you share your knowledge with the area with us, and uh, sounds like you have a real love affair going on for that area, so uh, you're the right person to talk about it, and uh, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me, Roger. I appreciate all the listeners tuning in also and hearing our conversation. Yep. Hopefully, all of you have found uh, our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link at the top of our page or any of the pages on the top-line menu. You'll see the podcast archive. We have over 200, 320 shows now in the archive. Uh, you can search it by keyword, keyword phrase, trout, tarpon, you know, Madison River, uh, permit, whatever you like, and you're going to find some show on it, I'm sure. So. Uh, poke around and uh, plenty to learn there and explore. Our next broadcast will be on November 18th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On that show, I'll be interviewing Kirk Johnson. 
and our topic for the show will be The Feather Thief. Kirk is the author of the true crime adventure, uh, The Feather Thief, and he's intrigued by the theft of hundreds of rare bird specimens from the Tring Museum in England, and Kirk journeys into the underground world of fanatical fly tires and plume peddlers looking for the truth behind why the theft took place and what happened to all the birds that were stolen. So join us and hear the story from the author that has drawn so many of many readers to, to this great book. I'd like to thank Roger, Mike can I give a plug? Sure. I, I read that I read that book this summer and it is an amazingly well written book. You guys should pick it yeah. up and read it. Tune tune in. It's a it's an awesome story. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're not a fly fisher, it's an awesome story, right? It's you a know? great well, story. It's a yeah, great story. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, good. Well, everybody join us, and, and uh, you'll be able to ask questions of Kirk next show. I'd like to thank uh, Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well,